Scripture reading is from Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, good morning, North Cross. Um, let me get a look at you. Um, in 1812, James and Wilhelm Grimm published a book called Grimm Brothers Fairy Tales. And the uh, first fairy tale in many editions is called The Frog Prince. And you probably know the story of the frog prince or the frog king. Uh, this prince got mixed up with an evil witch. I guess he owed her money, something like that. And uh, she um, turned him into a frog. Now, you've probably wanted to do that on the highway sometimes, if you could turn someone into a frog. She turned him into a frog. And as fairy tales go, uh, those kinds of evil enchantments, there's a way out. And the way out is when the frog... If he were to ever be kissed by a princess, he would turn back into a prince. So, um, I want you guys to think of yourself as frogs. Okay, uh, You're under a, a spell. Now, I know that uh, we've been, many of us have been awakened already once in our conversion to Christ, but there's still work to be done, and I want you to to pretend like you're a frog. In fact, why don't you just envision yourself sitting there as a frog. If you want to, you can put your hands like this. And I want you also to uh, look around and envision uh, everybody else as sort of a big frog sitting on their chair. So we'll take a moment of silence and see if we can, we can feel this. That seems real seems real. Well, it is kind of real. Um, both the uh, evil enchantment is a real thing, and the being awakened by a kiss is a real thing, too. In fact, it has biblical precedence. Adam, uh, before, when he was inert, if you will, uh, God formed his body out of the dust of the earth and then he leaned over and breathed into his nostrils a very intimate, kiss-like act, the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. And then, uh, in a scripture that you don't hear very much, John 20, uh, the disciples were hiding, basically, in the, uh, in behind closed doors after the death of Jesus. They had heard about his resurrection, but they hadn't seen him. Um, or hadn't seen him much. And he appeared to them in this locked room, and he said peace to them. And it says when he said this to them, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So that word breathed, I uh, looked it up in Strong's Concordance, and it means breath. So another close, intimate act where a kiss, or a kiss-like act, awakens us back to our life, and we return to who we were originally meant to be. So that frog theme, that enchantment theme, and the resurrection or the awakening are what we're talking about to hear. Uh, now the, the passage is, um, is the beginning or a reading 
of the Ten Commandments that Moses gave to the Israelites right before he died. There's two times where, and once in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy, where Moses reads the Ten Commandments. And this idea of being brought out of enchantment or brought out of bondage is right there in the preamble of the, the Deuteronomy passage. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know the story. The Israelite nation had been enslaved for 400 years. God heard their cry, and he's the God that's bringing them out of slavery. That's what this passage is about. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. And the first commandment, you're familiar with it, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, you know the story that... that um, that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God wrote with his own hand the Ten Commandments into tablets of stone. So I brought uh, a stone here today several years ago, maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I had a counseling client that went to the Holy Land uh, on one of those tours. And she was with a learned professor, I think from Gordon-Conwell. And when she came back, she brought me this rock. And uh, as a souvenir, and she said, I don't, how she got it through Israeli customs, I do not know, and I did not ask. Um, but this rock is from Mount Sinai, uh, an actual rock from actual Mount Sinai, and I keep it in my office. It's, see, you see the book, so it holds books really well with the right angle. Um, now, I thought it was pretty cool to have something like this uh, from redemptive history. But I was a little disappointed, truthfully. I didn't let her know this at first, but I was a little disappointed. I thought, a thou shalt not rock? I, I don't kind of see myself as a law kind of guy. Couldn't you have gotten me a, a jug of water from the River Jordan? Or a lily from the um, Mount of, uh, Sermon on the Mount? Couldn't you have gotten that? But she gave me this. And over the years... I've come to change my mind about this rock. Uh, and I see it in my office from time to time. I don't always see it, you know, how things blend in. But sometimes I see it, and it reminds me that God brings people out of slavery. That's what he does. It's not a side gig. It's kind of his main thing. Uh, and the, the, the sign I experienced was God saying, you shall have no other gods before me, because there's nothing going to get in between me and my love for you. God, God is a God who brings us out of slavery. So the outline today is that there's one true God is love. God is love. Other gods aren't. And you become like the God you serve. You become their slaves. That's the main three points. So God is God. There are no other gods before God. Now, God is first, both in terms of timeline, he was there before time, and also in terms of what causes things. He's the first cause. Um, but there's another distinction that I'm going to try to make today between the true God and other gods, and that is that God is love. Uh, Jesus said the same thing about this commandment or about the commandments in Mark 12. When, when someone came to him and asked him, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, 
the most important is this, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 5 later in the passage, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or there is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus reduces the whole law, reduces. He hangs the whole law on the commandment to love God and to love others. He is saying that this commandment is about love. The Ten Commandments are about love. You don't normally think of them that way, but that's what it was, a covenant with his people. If you'll put up the C.S. Lewis quote, the God who needs nothing, there it is. Uh, when I was uh, in high school, late high school and college, I would read Mere Christianity once a year. It was one of those books that kind of uh, opened up Christianity for me and helped me see what, uh, what was really being said. And this quote, which is kind of a minor quote, you don't see it quoted a lot, uh, struck me uh, just a, maybe 10 years ago. It struck me again. And he says, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. Now, the, I had to look up the word superfluous. I had to look up how to pronounce it, too. Um, superfluous means not needed. God who needs nothing. Uh, God didn't need um, a choir, so he created people to sing in a choir. He didn't need people to build tabernacles to him. He didn't need, he needs nothing. And yet he created, why? Because he loves people into existence that he doesn't need in order that he may love and protect, perfect them. This is God's glory. It's his purpose this is what it's about. That's what God wants to do. And so is the commandment. The purpose of creation is God's glory, and God's glory is bound up in the love relationship with human beings. He loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order they may love and perfect them. God, in some, God doesn't need us. He wants us. Now that's a That's a Sunday school answer in one way, one way of looking at it, and it's highly profound in another that God wants us when he doesn't need anything. And so he says, you shall have no other gods before me. God, uh, we make God a priority, and God makes us his love's priority. As demonstrated by Christ, that passage I read when he breathed on him, he, he appeared in the room and he showed him his hands, and his side. He let him touch his hands and his side. God demonstrates his love for us and that nothing got in the way of his love for us by the Christ's death and then resurrection on the cross, including those mortal wounds. So God is God because he's a God of love. Other gods aren't God because they aren't ultimate, and secondly, because they don't love. They devour. God gives other gods take. Two examples. I'm going to give you one now. I'm going to give you one at the end of the sermon. Uh, but first, let me give you three categories uh, that I want you to think in when we talk about other gods. They are often, not always, but they are often good things made into ultimate things. This is Tim Keller's definition, I believe. They are good things made into ultimate things. Number two, we feel or fear our way to other gods more than we think our way to them. We feel threatened and scared, 
And so we try something out, and we get, a, we, get a, we get a ping back on it, and we respond to it, and we get hooked. Therefore, since we don't think our way to false gods, we don't think our way away from them. You don't read a book. You don't reason your way away from them. That's not how you get away from them. And then thirdly, we become like the God we serve, losing or diminishing our ability to love as we go. We become slaves to that God. So let me give you the first example. You've heard of Baal and Molech, Asherah poles. You've heard of those gods. There's another god you may not have heard of, a very old god. It's the god Enoch, E-N-O-G-H. You ever heard of the god Enoch? I'm on a, a client um, just a few weeks ago um, evoked this god's name. And he said to me, um, as he was talking about his week and his life, he says, I have this, see if you can hear it, I have this underlying anxiety or discomfort that I've not done enough. So you hear the God enough? And ever feel like you're not smart enough? You're not uh, attractive enough? You're not doing enough? Uh, it's the God enough. Now this client, he says, um, and it's a, it's a crippling anxiety, I feel like I'm not doing enough, and he's working like, he's got a job. He says, honestly, it's probably a, a 45, maybe a 50-hour-a-week job. I'll probably put in 70 because he's always uncertain if he's doing enough. Now, let me ask you a couple questions about that. How many areas of life can you apply not doing enough to? How many areas? Easy answer, isn't it? Um, all of them. Um, do you um, do enough for your family? Are you spending enough time with your kids or your friends? Do you work out enough? Are you flossing? <laughs> Are you doing enough? It can be applied to every area of your life. It just expands. But not only to every area of your life that you have in your life, but to every potential area that you might likely have in your life. The client that I'm talking about is not married, and so when he gets married, he's going to apply this God there, too, if that's still his God, or his family, his kids, or retirement, or yada, yada, yada. What about every potential area that could be in your life? I really should learn Mandarin. I should go get an MDiv. There's lots of things that this could apply to that you're not doing that you should or could or ought. And then this last one is the really crushing one. You could apply this not doing enough to every area of what other people might expect of you. Or if you want, you can apply it to what, uh, what you think that other people expect of you. And this gets bigger and bigger, and it's crushing. And that was, his, uh, that was his thing. What will other people think if I don't have this report just polished up just right? You hear the underlying demand. If he can organize himself enough, push himself enough, then perhaps he'll get to doing enough in each of those areas. And then maybe, maybe this anxiety, this comfort will release him. And the second thing I wanted to notice about what he said if the anxiety is underlying, if the discomfort is kind of underneath, subterranean, 
Is it really about the task that need to be accomplished? Or is it about something more fundamental? Maybe it's about his sense of worth. Uh, maybe he's trying to do enough so that he feels okay about himself. Maybe that came first, and then he got applied to everything else. There's a, um, one thing I've learned from counseling these many years is that everybody is deeply insecure. And it kind of makes sense. We're made for the garden, and we're not there anymore, and that bothers us. We don't know if we're enough for this world. We don't know if this world is enough for us, and we're insecure about that, and that's a real thing. And so we look, like the children's story about the little circle with the missing piece, we roll around looking for what might complete us or fill us up. And so if this is about his worthiness, then here's a word problem for you. How many sales would it take for him to feel valued? How many good year-end reviews? How many attaboys from his wife when he gets married? How many times does she have to compliment him for him to feel okay about himself? You see, if he puts, if he puts this... Um, uh, sense of being valued on his wife, she's never going to be enough to make him feel okay about himself. Uh, she's going to feel pressure. He's going to feel uh, guilt, uh, and it's not going to go well. Now, he told me that he feels this mostly about work right now. He's a young guy. He feels it mostly about work, and I asked him, does it ever relent? He said, yes, I get one day a week. I leave work on Friday and on Saturday, I don't think about all the things that I haven't done that I'm supposed to do or what people is expecting on me. And then I said, what happens on Sunday? He says, it all comes back. It all comes back and I start, starts flying around in my brain. I start thinking about what I need to do that week and how I need to do it and who's going to be there and what they're going to say and all that. And I said, well, when does it start on Sunday? And he kind of grinned and he said, Saturday night. So it's squeezing him. This God of enough is squeezing his life. Now, remember my three categories. The first was that, we, that other gods, they're usually making a good thing into an ultimate thing. I ran across this quote. I think it was from a, some kind of a mom's blog, uh, but it was about ordinate loves, about properly ordering your loves. And this is the quote. A mother... A mother who loves her children best when she doesn't love them most. A mother loves her children best when she doesn't love them most. Now, um, that could be applied to a spouse too, right? Uh, a spouse who loves their spouse best doesn't love them most. A pastor who loves his congregation best is one who doesn't love them most. We love God most, and out of the overflow of that, we love our other, other things well. If not, um, we end up putting pressure on those things, uh, our children to turn out right, our children to be happy, or our husband or spouse to love us, uh, or to be happy themselves, or to receive our love. We end up getting it all backwards. So the client here, he's making performance or excellent, completeness. All these are good things. Good font selection on his emails. 
Those are all good things. He fusses over emails. Do y'all do that? Reread them, wonder if you're, they're right. They're excellent servants, but they're terrible masters. Secondly, the thing about categories, we feel or fear our way to God's much more than thinking our way. This man I'm describing, he didn't go to, he didn't Google uh, the 10 best other gods in 2023 and pick one. He came to this through trial and error. Um, maybe um, um, maybe he felt his, um, somewhere along the way, I should say, his legitimate thirst for approval and acceptance and okayness got connected with performance. Maybe that happened in school. Um, maybe that happened with his dad. Maybe his dad modeled this. Maybe his dad criticized him and told him it wouldn't be worth anything because he couldn't do anything, and he flipped it. Or maybe his first real paycheck came to him and it unexpectedly scratched an itch. Maybe he felt something there that he'd never gotten from sports or academics or women. By performing at work, I can reproduce this feeling that I'm okay finally. And it's, like, it's like alcohol or gambling. We get that hit back that first time. It works. We get something back and we go back to it and we've got to have more and more of it, and it gives us less and less. The alcoholic says, at first you drink to feel good, and then you drink not to feel bad. Um, so somewhere along the way, he, he got those two connected. We want approval, and when something that comes along promises it, we try it, and then through trial and error, we become attached to it. We get hooked through feeling our way into it. We're seduced into idolatry. A seductive promise that we can do something to produce the feeling of okayness that we crave. Now, that I can do something to self-manufacture the okayness that I need. You hear the control in there, and you hear the never-ending pursuit of that. Nothing's big enough except for God, and we can't make Him love us. And then thirdly, we become like the other God and slaves to it, losing and diminishing our ability to love. So where is this headed for this guy? If it grows, he'll become more and more like the God do enough. He'll be looking for more and more things to do. And when he gets that one more thing done, he'll look for the next thing to do. What will his bosses do when he gets things done? They'll give him something else to do. Because you give things to do to people who get things done. And he might resent it, he may not like it, but he'll do it because his value is attached to doing. Gradually, he loses his ability to love, and not only because he's too busy, but because even loving, even in the loving things he does, they become with mixed motive. There's a difference between doing something for you and your good and doing something, so let me say that differently. There is a difference between me doing something for you for your good and me doing something for you so that I feel valued and they get mixed up very easily. Do you serve the God enough? Let me give you an application. I'm almost in the middle of the sermon. Let me give you an application. If you want to know if you're serving other gods or what those gods are, notice your reflexive choices, your reflexive behavior when you're uncomfortable or threatened. When something that happens that makes you anxious 
or uncomfortable, what do you do? Do you go do more stuff? Do you run away? Do you drink? What do you do? Now, just notice it. Don't judge it. And don't immediately rationalize it. Well, this stuff needs to get done. Just notice it. That's what my client was doing. That's why he brought it to me. He had noticed his weekends and how he was spending hours fixating on our email, and he wasn't enjoying what God had given him. And that's what the prodigal son did, too. He noticed that he was eating pig slop, and he noticed the difference. That's how repentance began for him. So just notice. Now, that doesn't seem like much of an application. But if you'll honestly notice what you reflexively do when you get defensive or you get angry or you run away, notice that. Now, the other thing that I wanted you to notice about other gods is that they devour and deceive. If you'll put that C.S. Lewis quote up, there's a, um, from a book, um, um, The Screwtape Letters. Now, The Screwtape Letters are written, it's a little bit different, they're written as if a senior devil is writing to a junior devil telling him how to tempt his patient. So it's a little backwards. And so when he talks about our enemy, he's talking about God. When he talks about our father, he's talking about Satan. So it's kind of like a double negative. Okay? Gene told me, has told me, that double negatives are confusing. But I said to her, well, double negatives are not without their non-inefficiencies. <laughs> I thought we had kind of a moment there. Something about the way she looked at me. It, so... This is kind of like a double negative. Let's, I'm going to read through it. There's one line that particularly I want to pull out. He's writing to his junior devil, and he says, One must face the fact that all the talk about his love, God's love, for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as we'd like to believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale, will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because he, their wills freely conform to his. We, that is devils, want cattle who can finally become food, and he wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim in a world in a, is a world in which our father below has drawn all other things into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. So Satan wants cattle. God wants children. Other gods devour and deceive. God is a God of love. Jesus makes this contrast too in John 10, and he says the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So the way out of idolatry is not to think your way out, not to learn about idols and how bad they are for you per se. That's a good thing, but it's not sufficient. If you're seduced into idols, you're wooed out. You're brought out of idols because of love. Now, um, Third point, you become slaves to the other gods you serve. Um, 
Psalm 115, those who make them idols become like them, and so do all that trust in them. When you serve other gods, you become driven by what that God demands, like the man that I told you about. He, um, he sacrifices other concerns, his health, his relationships. He overworks, overfrets, overthinks, overcompensates. He is irritable and feels no one appreciates what he's doing. He might blame others or himself or both. He becomes a human doing and loses touch with a human being. You end up becoming a frog. You end up becoming like the gods you serve under an evil enchantment, thinking like a frog and eating like a frog. Now, I felt, um, I'm hoping that the scripture will kiss you today and it'll awaken you to some degree from out of your slumber. But there will be a percentage of you that remain frauds despite the sermon. So I took the opportunity to order lunch for the people that stay frauds. Ordered it from Bug Hub. Uh, and so if you don't turn into a prince or a princess, I have lunch for you afterwards. So come see me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Just look under, look past the vegan and the um, um, gluten-free to the amphibian cuisine, and you can order it yourself. You become like a frog. You eat frog food. And that's exactly what the prodigal, that's why he left. He came to his senses, it says. He saw that what he was wanting to eat was nothing like what was at his father's house, and he returned home. When you serve God, the New Testament teaches us that we become like him to the point that we regain ourselves. We become the human being that we're created again. Our mind slows down. Our mouth slows down too. Our hearts open up. Our ears open up. We have less to hide. We learn to trust others and trust ourselves. We remember what it's like to enjoy something simple and good. We don't take things so personally. Forgiveness ceases to be something we avoid and something we crave. Now I'm going to give you one more example of a um, false god. This is from a post that I wrote for our blog at um, Barnabas. It's entitled Muscle Man. It's about me. But you spell muscle, you spell muscle, M-U-S-S-E-L. Muscle. I am a true muscle man. That is, when I feel afraid, listen for my idol here, when I feel afraid, I clam up. I shut myself up inside a shell, self-contained, needing nothing, needing no one. I am hard on the outside to protect my soft internals from hurt and disappointment. Encased in my shell, I create my own mini-world, my own, and I am there, my own mini-God. I flexed my muscleness just the other night. Something happened between my wife and I, Jean and I, something producing a negative emotion, something like hurt. So I did what I do. I cried out to the other God that I rely on when I am afraid. Oh God, the great I clam. Protect me now, I pray. Well, I don't really say it out loud, but I did actually clam up. And in order to make the detachment complete, I decided to go to bed early. Yes, I would close my lid, burrow under the blanket, and lay in darkness to froth and ferment. But my plan hit a kink. 
Jean, not yet sensing my turmoil, said sweetly, you know, I'll just turn in with you. And so she snuggled in beside me. This was too close for comfort. So I decided to turn my back to her, which for a clam, I mean, I had to first decide which side of me was my back. <laughs> it's the hinge side. Um, then I had to roll over, which isn't an easy maneuver for an armless mollusk. But I managed it and lay there cold and impenetrable. Now, I wasn't trying to send a message, but Jean got one nonetheless. I wasn't trying to make her feel alone. I just wanted space. I wasn't trying to scare her. I just wanted to feel safe. I wasn't trying to accomplish any of those, but I succeeded in all of them. Here's my confession. Just when I need to trust God the most, I reflexively turn to my other gods. Just when I need to transform into a trusting, mature man, I devolve into an adolescent crustacean. When I need to talk, I clam up. When I need to be vulnerable enough to love, I pull in and shut down. I trust my God, detachment to, a God of detachment to protect me, but when I do, I end up hurting the very people I want love from. I try to create a world small enough to control, and to a degree I succeed, but then that small world closes in around me, and I'm in there alone, which is what I thought I wanted. I started this because I wanted to be loved, but I end, I make love impossible. How foolish is that? Just picture Jean lying there trying to spoon with a giant necretious bivalve clam, and you immediately see my shelflessness. But it really isn't funny. It's really bad hurting Jean like that. But it's even worse than that. Far worse. When I shut the doors to love, I'm saying to God, I don't need you, nor do I want you. I am my own. I do not need light or air you. And tragically, I get what I set out to get. No light, no air, no one. I succeed beyond my wildest dreams and beyond my most terrible nightmares. I succeed in making my own tiny universe where I am alone and shut down. Well, I am sort of like a god in there in my shell, I suppose, but that kingdom isn't a place of freedom. It's a prison. I wanted to create a world where I couldn't, could control love, but ended up creating a hell where love is not possible. To clam yourself, it turns out, is to damn yourself. I became like the god I served, alone in the dark mud of my fears. No love going out, no love coming in. Other gods promise control, but they eventually entrap you. When you are threatened, you will turn to them reflexively. Your world will become small. You will end up being devoured and used up by that idol that can neither give nor receive love. Your most wonderful gift, the capacity to be loved by God and then to pass that love to others, will be extinguished. You will become voiceless like the God, dumb gods you serve. The true God who brought us out of slavery says, You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment compels, can I say, invites us away from that prison. Put the Lord of love first in your life. It will scare you to trust the living God and lay aside your other gods. It will feel like death, but it is op the opposite. You won't finally die. You'll slowly open up and live. When you feel like the only option is to contract, contract into your own little world, you'll slowly find options to give and expand. When you want so badly to control, you will find the clumsy ability to trust. You will find when you put the Lord God before all other gods 
The very thing you thirst for is what he wants to give. Come back to the living God who came for you. Let him breathe the spirit of life into you and become the living being you were created to be. Amen. Don't forget lunch. <laughs>